My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is managing and overcoming trauma. Our guest today is Dr. Rashpal Denza Kalon, or Razi, as I know her. Uh, we <laughs> met first in LSC. Is that right, Razi? We did. Many years ago now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you were my tutor uh, in the organization behavior course uh, that I undertook in the London School of Economics. Uh, Rashpal is a charter psychologist and joined Birkbeck's Department of Organizational Psychology in the spring of 2021. She has earned her PhD in organization behavior and employment relations from the London School of Economics. And prior to joining Birkbeck, she worked at the University of Surrey. Before commencing her PhD, she worked in consulting, specializing in coaching, career transition, challenging interactions, issues, and well-being, psychometric assessment, and survey analysis. Her training in psychology and organizational behavior underpins her research, teaching, as well as ongoing work in coaching and consulting. Today, we are going to talk about some of the research that Rashpal has conducted into how individuals manage challenging issues that can have a major impact on their lives, both at work and outside it. This includes studies of individuals have been mistreated at work, who are faced with inequality and individuals who are witness to traumatic societal events such as terror attacks. She has a particular interest in individual adjustment in the face of adversity, including processes around healing, care and growth. Most of her work utilizes a mixed methods design. Rashpal continues to undertake commissioned research and consulting projects. She has recently completed research for the NHS on protected characteristics. Raji, so good to see you. You too. I don't recognise myself from that brief, but yes. And it's (laughs) all true. It is all true, yes. It's wonderful. So where should we start? So so there's a lot of research that you have done, conducted yourself, and I suppose have leveraged uh, others' research where do you think we should begin this conversation? It is so fascinating how trauma is inside of work, outside of work, and especially all the societal issues that are going on at the moment. So where should we begin? You know what, William, I think given where we're at historically right now, um, I don't think a day goes by without us talking about the pandemic or about COVID. So maybe a good starting point might be to consider that and some of the research which I'm just writing up now, um, which considers sort of the COVID, the pandemic as a traumatic and stressful experience that globally so many of us are experiencing. So that might be a, a good place if we start big macro societal and then sort of work our way down. How does that sound? 
That that sounds great. So it, are we going to start from, we'll say, hospitals and your work with the NHS? Is, is that where we should begin? Uh, no, well, we'll come to that in a moment um, if you want to. But this is just a paper that um, I won some funding for last year um, from through Birkbeck and through the Welcome Strategic Fund. And what I wanted to do was to explore the traumatic impact on people of living through a pandemic. Mm. So many of us, excuse me, don't remember um, living through a pandemic unless we were exposed in any way to um, the the, the SARS a a few years ago or one of the sort of uh, smaller pandemics. This is the first time globally and potentially since the Spanish flu that everyone is going through various degrees, but the same boat, we're on the same boat here. We're all living through lockdowns. We're all living through um, lots of restrictions placed on our freedom to move around, to mix and uh, intermingle with people that we work with or our loved ones. So I think when it comes to thinking about people's psyche, their conscience right now, I think globally, everyone is in the same boat. So what I was really interested in understanding is what is the mental health impact of this collective global trauma? And so I, and this is all sort of, um, I, I, I have two interests. One is very organizational specific. One is a bit more macro and sort of societal specific. So this one falls into the sort of society bucket a little bit. And so for the past few months, it's been a, an interesting, uh, albeit arduous journey of crunching through some data um, to try to understand the mental health impact of um, the, the couple of years of the, the lockdowns that the UK specifically has been through um, compared to mental health rates the 10, year, 10 years before. So one of the ways um, that we wanted to get a handle on, you know, you hear all the time people referring to uh, and myself included how hard lockdown has been these past two years have been such a struggle for people in their own ways having to be at home for prolonged periods of time just the mental health impact of having to um, look after children teach them um, stay employed work all sorts of crazy hours the whole dynamic has shift from what we're doing at home versus what we used to do outside curbs on our freedoms to to go outside and mix and and I guess for want of a better phrase be normal and so the way in which I did this was asking a question these two years of the pandemic have they been um, detrimental to the UK mental health if we were to compare that to rates up to 10 years before which give us a good insight into where sort of um, the rates are fluctuating or not so I used a, a big data set called understanding society and it's a longer panel survey of tens of thousands of citizens across the UK and they complete surveys every every couple of years Um, and they completed surveys regularly at eight points during the the last two years of COVID. We amalgamated that data and my my colleagues and I and Jackie's also on this paper um, um, who you know quite well with the previous 10 years and we found some really really interesting results. We found for example that mental health rates had dipped If we look at the previous two years compared to the past 10 before 2020, there's a demonstrable difference in people um, being more mentally distressed. 
So that was that was um, it was an, uh, interesting to read statistically that there was a difference there. People talk about it all the time in conversation. They they often refer to how hard they're finding life, finding things, etc. So that was that was good to sort of put some science on um, some some chats that we you know, might have on a daily basis. But we drilled further, and this was some of the interesting results, which I'm writing up now. So I'm going to be quite loose about what we say um, before it goes into to review. But we found that. Rates over the two years of lockdown, or just COVID years, let's call them, say 2020 um, and all of 2021 as well. We just call that COVID period. Mental health rates were lower um, by and large. They were lower for women. Women struggled more. Younger people struggled more. Um, And we found those um, who were in various uh, forms of education struggled more as well. What was really interesting is that we found that at every lockdown, um, so in the UK, for example, uh, there have been three discernible lockdowns. At each and every lockdown, the rates dipped even more. So generally during the two years of COVID, mental health rates were, was, were, were lower, they were fluctuating. But every time there was a lockdown, they dipped even further. And I think that's, for, for a social scientist, that's interesting. But I guess for a human being, it, it it's worrying that if we are to go into lockdown at any point in the future again, um, we really, really have to account for, for its impact on each and every one of us. And more so those who um, have children, are female um, and are from certain ethnicities, they tend to struggle a little bit more. But also, I think some important messages that come off the back of this for um, public policy is there's a lot to deal with. You know, William, you've probably heard too, right, that there's a once the, the pandemic is done with, there's a mental health pandemic to deal with. Yeah. And I think that's the most interesting thing, that the, the, the most recent lockdown um, was not that long ago, really. And people don't just <clears throat> stop being affected mentally once lockdown is finished. Some of those, um, those distressing feelings that you have, um, they linger and they continue and they can continue for years. And so I think what we're trying to wrangle through now is what are the implications of this? There are clearly so many of us in society that are going to need a little bit more help to get back on our feet. So just some interesting conclusions um, being drawn from that. And that really links in with so many global researchers who have said that every time there's a collective traumatic event, I mean, a pandemic was... um, the biggest one in our living memory globally. But if there's a, a, a terror attack, etc., it has a lingering impact on people. It doesn't just disappear um, when it stops or whoever is held responsible um, is, is, you know, is given a sentence, whatever it might be. These things linger. So it ties in um, quite neatly with, with global research on the impact of collective events on, on individual people. Things linger, they stay in. And so many of us need help with that at some point. So... Interesting conclusions there, but that, that's still being written up. So ask what you want. It might be a little bit dubious in how I reply, but that's sort of the, the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, I think that's that's quite interesting that, you know, while it's the pandemic here, it could be like a terror attack or, for example, a war in, in, in Europe or, or something like that, 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 that could have a, a major implication there. So this is what's going on is, is, is and I'm, I'm going to quote from uh, Wendy Ryan's book. So I interviewed in a podcast a couple of mm. uh, episodes ago, and she talks about 
the demographics which you're talking about would say ethnicities and you know women in the workplace and younger people the environment you know people are concerned about climate change politics maybe technology or terror threats and and health and there's all these different aspects where we can do that And, and i'm curious then as a collective then is this trauma a form of post-traumatic stress then is, is this what's going on for us that that's kind of staying there which is maybe we haven't recovered or healed from and and if so how do we how do we move forward i i think so william without um having research on that myself to, to, to testify specifically, I think it is a bit of post-traumatic stress as well. And that's the, the lingering effects of an event on people. And I think that um, a lot of people will walk around following um, the pandemic, following a terror attack, and they're relatively untouched. They're, you know, they're able to process things quickly, park them, not ruminate. But so many people are still thinking about it they're thinking about what they lost during those times they're thinking about um what curbs on their freedoms did to their livelihood to their lives at home with the people that they love and for many people processing that making sense of it in such a way that you're able to continue life is really quite hard and i think for these people uh, to, to varying degrees the knock-on effect is is it, it's not been able to sleep it's about increased anxiety when you do go out it's about that anxiety um or, or, almost sort of um terror management thinking that something might go wrong being heightened um in an anxiety sort of sense thinking that you might lose people quite easily and that that fear um possibly even the lack of hope about what might be around the corner. Um, I think for a lot of people, those sentiments and those feelings will harbour for a long time. And that's those sort of underlying um, emotions that happen. They can then cause ongoing stressful um, situations for people. Um, thinking about these things all the time, being fearful, being anxious, etc., cetera, um, can make people physically unwell. Um, it can lead to all sorts of complications over time and, and psychologically it can be debilitating over a long period. Most people will recover quite quickly, William, I think. I think a lot of us, yeah. now that we're heading into sort of um, freedoms, as they say here in the UK, restrictions are lifted. A lot of us have short term memories. We'll think, right, this is great, back to normal. But for those people who have had more arduous experiences, losing loved ones, it's been quite traumatic in, in many ways. Um they just interpreted not being able to do the normal things in quite a challenging way, being under huge pressure to stay at home, look after the home, being caregivers, losing work, managing work. I think for a lot of people, it takes a long time to make sense of that trauma, even if you'd say six months, 12 months it is relatively short lived. But I think to answer your question, there are pockets of people who have struggled more. And research says time and time again that women who often shoulder the caregiving burdens um, have struggled a little bit more. Um, people from various ethnicities have struggled a little bit more. People from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds have struggled a little bit more. And for them, I think, perhaps the journey might be even more debilitating and they're in even more need of sort of mental health resources to get back on their feet yeah it seems like it, it's, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle because if you have stress in your life and you're traumatized yeah. then you go into work or you're 
your relationships with people might deteriorate and there might be further anxieties then happening. You might be overprotective of your children or different things like that that can happen. And then there's something that you you mentioned there about sense making. So I know this refers to the work maybe of of Sadly Matlas. Um before we go into that, is there any other results about your, your research that would be important for us to, to know now? There, there are some interesting um, findings that we have with regards to loneliness as well. Okay. Um, but um, for example, you know, I'll give you the, the, the rough um, overview. We are finding that there are different trajectories of loneliness, that if you're lonely, uh, if, you, if you declare yourself to be lonely generally anyway, the pandemic really didn't have that much of an impact on you. But those of us who might say we're moderately lonely or sometimes lonely, then actually the pandemic had a really damaging effect um, compared to sort of previous 10 years. But that, that's the headline. Now I have to go write it. But that, that I thought was an interesting statistic um, also. That there was this, you know, people often refer to another um, epidemic coming up, the loneliness one. There's so many people are living on their own more than ever, particularly in the Western world. I haven't dabbled too much in that research, but I think that that is something that is worth keeping an eye on as well. I think, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring it out in this paper and I'll see where my own research goes, but I think keeping an eye on that and how people in those kind of um, situations have borne the brunt of the pandemic and how they then continue life, I think that's also going to be quite interesting uh, going forward. So Raji, you talked about a collective trauma and one of those collective traumas was terror. And I'm yes. I'm interested in that notion. What are your insights on that? So terror bombings are another form of collective trauma. This idea that it's not a personal individual trauma, but it's something that affects a lot of people in society. So another line of research that I have also under review, um, I'm coming back, you know, after my own childbearing years now, William, I've got a lot of papers that are just finally finally heading, heading the right way. Um, so we also know that like the pandemic, which is a big global sort of health pandemic, terror bombings are also considered collective trauma because they are traumatising for a lot of people who are witness to them. And, and oftentimes the research shows you don't have to be in the vicinity of um, a, a, a terror uh, attack taking place, even witnessing it as a vicarious sort of observer, someone who might, might live in the same city. You might see it on the news. Um, you might learn about it through through family members, through friends, It's because it's in the same country that you live in. That is also considered a form of collective trauma in that it can be upsetting for people it can be difficult for them to make sense of what has happened and how do they reconcile that um, when their assumptions about what life is how life should be played out on a daily basis are in essence shattered you've then got to reconfigure sort of what you know about um how the world should be, how, you know, why we're, we're all taught that the world is a good place by and large, particularly as we're growing up and we all want it to be um, a, a nice place for everyone to get along and live it together, etc. with minor disagreements along the way. But these collective events really shatter our assumptions um, and sort of making sense of why they've happened um, is, is, is on everyone's mind. So 
some of my research has looked at trying to understand some of the natural things that people do during collective trauma. Um, what, what is it that people um, who are vicariously observing this, what do they do? And one of the things that I found is that people want to share. They want to talk about what's happened with other people. In other words, they, they, they defect to others. And that's a real social psychological instinct that we all have. And research uh, for, for decades and decades has testified to that, that under conditions of stress, one of the first things humans do is defect to others caregivers, whoever that might be, loved ones, friends, family, we want to feel comfort. We want to sort of sense make with them about what's happened and get that love and comfort and understanding from them. And so I've analysed a number of incidents in the UK over the past few years, terror bombings, knife attacks, as well as the, um, the current COVID pandemic. And there's an interesting pattern that we're noticing. And it, it doesn't make for... Um, joyful reading forgive me though there'll be moments where i'm also looking at growth as well but we are finding that when people defect to others when they're seeking that emotional support immediately after um witnessing observing something collectively and traumatic happening that doesn't always help people the idea that the, the collective wisdom here is that share your feelings with somebody else in fact early on during the pandemic a lot of the advice given to um human beings across the world was, you know, find a safe space, talk to other people about how you feel. Generally, that can be okay. But if those conversations end up um, reinforcing, recovering what's happened, to relive that negativity again and again, that can again be quite harmful and quite debilitating on people's health generally, where you, you walk away from those emotional connections actually feeling worse than you did um, when you first went to sort of share um, thoughts about uh, what happened and seek that comfort. And that's not done on purpose. I don't think it can be, but I didn't find in my research that anyone goes out of their way to make everyone, anyone else feel terrible. But often if you're all in the same boat and if you're all talking about something in, in the early days, there's a lot of negativity there, a lot of anger perhaps even there, and that can make people ruminate. So, you walk away from those encounters, brooding on what's happened, thinking about it, playing it again and again in your head. That then can lead to sort of um, a negative impact on your own health. So, yes, it is good to defect and talk, but sometimes that can backfire. So my understanding is that it's, it's, it's seeking out people that you can talk in a healthy way to make yeah. sense of what happened versus some people who may be going down in a in a negative downward spiral and kind of reinforcing the negatives versus yes. really what we should be doing is expressing our, our feelings, uh, talking it through and trying to make sense of what's going on. And it's more of a, a healthier, encouraging type approach to those conversations. Is that what I'm getting from it? Sort of, sort of William. But I think what we're, we're finding here, it's, there was nothing malicious on the part of um, uh, the person being talked to. Nobody, yeah. nobody was going out of their way to make anyone feel bad. But I think this might actually, and again, this is pending further research. Mm. I think during those initial sense-making encounters, what on earth has just happened? Isn't this terrible? Who is responsible for the, you know, who, this atrocious event that's taken this many lives? I think yeah. the conversations early on just lend themselves 
there are no easy answers here, but there's a lot of sort of dabbling in the reality of what's happened and making sense of those shattered assumptions. And that that, that early process is so full of negative emotion. And, and quite naturally, I, I, I've also experienced exactly the same thing. There's, there's anger, there's fear, there's anxiety. And those early connections can be a little bit more challenging on people's sort of mental health. I'm sure if, if I had attract responses over a matter of time, I might have found a, a different trend that perhaps we th- those early conversations are just marked by making sense of all that fear and anger that arises in us immediately. But maybe over time that pacifies a little bit, actually. We might even argue that we need to go through that angry sort of fearful, anxious sense making in order to reach an understanding a day, a week, a month, a year later. So I only looked at the initial impact. Um, research in your questions, great. Further research that I myself will undertake will try to unpick whether that state of affairs continues long after, a week, two weeks, three weeks after. My hunch is that it probably doesn't. I think as, as um, you mentioned the work of, of Sally Maitlis, who I greatly admire just early on, her own research shows that we can grow from trauma. And I think perhaps if I continued my research over time, we'd find that these early experiences that people were making sense of, um, they might not have been able to make sense of them in the immediate aftermath. But perhaps a week, two weeks, a month, even a year later, they can look back and process that in a different way. So that actually those supportive encounters are indeed supportive rather than sort of backfiring. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does make sense. And I'm just curious then with the work of uh, Sally Maitlis, I I know she talked about her research with post-traumatic growth and injured musicians. So I have a a cousin, uh, Anya Turl in Australia, so I'm sure she's very interested in this. And that brings to mind of of COVID and maybe say doctors and nurses and emergency healthcare workers, whether it be in nursing homes or you know, GP surgeries or whatever, that they've been witness to a lot of death, a lot of illness, yeah. a lot more than they normally would due to, I suppose, the, the pandemic here. I suppose, what's your findings around around that then? I haven't specifically researched healthcare workers. I do actually, I'll, I'll come to talk about this study in just a moment when we talk about sort of more organisational trauma. Yeah. Um, I have a study there where I am looking more closely at, at nurses. That data, William, I also have to, to crunch through and analyse yet. You've caught me at sort of a, a research term where so many things are, are yeah. flying off at the shelf. But <clears throat> the research that I've read with uh, that's been conducted on healthcare workers, I think you're right to... to identify that they've been at the brunt of this we talk about the you know the mere mortals like the rest of us struggling but I think those who have been the key workers have struggled a little bit more and the volume of research on um, not only key workers so that's teachers firefighters um, your refuge collectors whatever it might be um, all the way through to healthcare workers nurses um, paramedics surgeons I think they are at the brunt, and I think that um, research evidently shows that they have suffered a lot. Their mental health, their physical health, 
if we go by recent reports of, of, of burnout and sickness absence um, in the healthcare sector, I'm, I'm talking for the UK here, but I imagine rates are very similar across the world. I think you're right. I think they've they've borne the brunt of, of, of this pandemic, really, haven't they? It's sad to see so many of them walking away as well. I was reading research the other day. So many of them are leaving um, given the, the tough conditions and circumstances under which they've had to work and will continuously have to work. But I, without having gone through the rates, comparing them to my own sort of general um, analysis, they've probably suffered more. And I think when we think about making sense of their experiences and, and, and moving on from their experiences, you might argue that because they're in high trauma occupations, they continuously face trauma on a daily basis, right? Healthcare workers, like the likes of you and I, um, might might experience traumatic things every now and then, just in the line of our work. But healthcare workers see it every day. You might you might argue that um, they experience it worse. Their their perhaps burnout stress levels are worse. Maybe they've learned over time to manage it better than the rest of us have as well. They must they must be doing something like that to stay in the jobs that they do. And I think it's worth noting that these people, like the musicians that you mentioned, and Sally Maitlis makes this point as well, there's a real calling for these people to do the, the work that they do. All the nurses that I've ever interviewed and worked with um, will all say that they feel they were born to do their work. You wonder whether that sense of calling helps absorb some of the trauma that they experience on a daily basis. I, I don't know the answer to that, but there's something about them that I think makes them manage this, this, this trauma on a daily basis probably better than, than other people do. And I guess like everybody, there comes a, a limit and a time beyond which it's impossible to, to function with everything sort of going on. But I think you're right. They've, they've borne the brunt of this pandemic. It is that really sense of, you know, of calling and that vocation. Yeah. And, and then we're talking about organizational trauma then and the work of, Sally Maitlis then like tell me a little bit about her research because she she talks about you know the different types of trauma uh, at work you know so post-traumatic growth at work then what what's important for us to know yeah that's really interesting and I think from what we've covered so far it it, um it's that that's just one half of looking at sort of trauma whether it's collective or more work-based what is the impact on people but there's another sort of part um of this jigsaw and that's the more sort of the more optimistic um that sort of connects when i'm doing my own work and um early work in this area connects you sort of back to humanity and how wonderful human beings are and can be and that's looking at sort of do people, can people bounce back from trauma? It's not just resilience. It's not just thriving. Those terms are, are similar, but, but a little bit different from post-traumatic growth as well. Growth is really um, taking some learning, some insight, some understanding from the negative experience that you've been through and really turning that around into something positive that continues with you throughout your life so the work with injured musicians was really looking at the new positive identities that people who suffer a career-ending injury are able to craft and then sort of move on in their career and their life with so you you almost see the trauma um, over time as something that you grow from 
And I think that's been hugely inspiring. I have many personal instances in life where I think I've done that without even knowing about it. So my own attraction to this area was that, you know, they say research is a bit of me search, don't they, William? We go through experiences and then we want to sort of figure out why why we went through those and, and why we acted and reacted the way in which we did. So my own personal experiences talk oftentimes to trying to find some good in something bad that's happened and grow from it. And my mother taught me that. I don't know whether being from sort of an Indian, slightly spiritual background, it's always been about, okay, so bad's happened, now turn it around. What, what can you learn from that? How can you move forward? So that's been instilled in me from a really early age. And, and a few major experiences, you know, everyone has them in, in their life, have made me think about that. And I got into this area by trying to figure out why it is and how it is that humans can do that. So Sally's work looks exactly, I call her Sally, Professor Sally Maitlis. I've not met her yet, but um, a, a real academic hero of mine um, looks at how people craft positive identities in the wake of experiencing trauma. And I'm interested in that myself. Um, how is it that people grow? And what we know is that people can grow, that people People don't just stop when they experience trauma. It's painful, it's hurtful, it's stressful. People have to sense make. It takes a while to go through the process. But so many people come through the other end, showing growth potential, new identities, new ways of thinking, feeling, behaving, acting. And that's really super when we look at the other side of suffering, I guess. And so the, the huge interest in that. I was reading the work of um, Jonathan Haidt. I've always... Um, been so interested in his perspective on um, the happiness hypothesis. You know, what does it take to be happy in life? Um, and one of the chapters I, I read again and again and again is, do we need to experience adversity in order to be happy? And you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to put my hand up and say this is a personal reflection, not a research-based one, because I'm really far off from getting anywhere near that. Lots of other people have answered this in many different ways. But one of the insights from that chapter is actually maybe we do that being hurt a little bit um, can sometimes be good for you because it can teach you a lot of things about what to do going forward in the future. Doesn't work for everybody, I'm pretty sure. So from a personal perspective here, I'd say, actually, yeah, um, I've personally encountered that so many times, hence my interest in the area. So I look for those instances where elements of trauma can help can can in, encourage people to grow and what that growth looks like so so many questions to ask actually William, at the moment and I've not even started researching but there's so much there we don't know enough about how people adjust in the face of adversity Sally's paved the way a few other researchers have been looking at post-traumatic growth as well but it's an amazing area of research um that, it is yeah. it is and and it, it... It's like that old saying, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, yeah, you know, right. yeah. <laughs> I, I remember, you know. How many times of... were we told that growing up, eh? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I identify this as well. I've often spoken on the podcast about different experiences I've had, and I've come to view these as a gift. It allows yeah. me to help my clients in a different way or to get a different insight or to gain more empathy with people or that connection to really understand what's going yeah. on for them. So I've, I've reframed that now. And that brings me then back to the work of Sandy Maitlis, because 
we have a, I have a diagram in front of me here, which I mm-hmm. think is fascinating, where it goes through that traumatic event where that assumptive world, we have these yeah. core beliefs that, that, as you said, get shattered. And there's a bit of emotional security there that gets shattered along with it. Would that be right in saying? Yeah. And, I think and, I know which with... diagram you're talking about. It's that lovely colourful one. <laughs> exactly. It's figure one I'm talking about. And it, and it talks yes. about disruption, dysregulation, growth cycle and outcomes. <laughs> so if we could talk about that, because uh, when I saw this first, I was going, oh, wow. This yeah. is a wonderful model to, to share with people. So could you... T- could you could we talk about that if that's okay with you absolutely all righty so do you want to share the the diagram or do we just talk about it generally yeah we'll just talk about generally generally okay the the idea is and i've sort of alluded to this as we've been speaking with him and this you know we can perhaps share this if anybody's interested this is from um sally's chapter uh, just a very short while ago. Um, and, and the diagram here refers to a traumatic event as shattering people's assumptions of the world. Um, and what that means is that we all have an idea of what the world is meant to be like. It's meant to be a good place. So when bad things happen, we're left thinking about what on earth just happened? Why would something bad happen? So you're questioning yourself. You're questioning what's happened and trying to make sense of it, trying to put um, some perspective um, on, on what it is that's happened. The impact of that is that can it can cause people to um, ruminate. It can cause them to think. And this is sort of what my own research in um, the the terror bombing, etc., was showing that people, when they're trying to make sense of what's happened, they're thinking about it again and again in their heads. Many of us are entertaining thoughts about what's happened, um, and we're probably doing this more than we should. We're doing it when we're sitting working we're doing we're making a cup of tea we might be doing it when we're, we're asleep but we're pondering on this it is it's on our minds it can disrupt our emotions these sort of broken assumptions can make us feel fearful scared anxious lacking in hope that in turn can affect how we we regulate our emotions how we respond um to things that are happening so we're trying to sort of make ourselves whole and understand what's happening but it's a challenge to the way that we think it's a challenge to the way that we feel as well but when we think about so that that process uh, has been established research shows that but when we look at how growth happens we and, and the model that sally has on this paper in this paper talks about how growth occurs through a cycle of emotion regulation and sense making you have to understand your emotions you have to try and make sense of what it's going what is going on in the world thinking about your own schemas of what what kind of a place the world is matching that to what's happened gauging some form of 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 peacemaking there if you will when that starts to happen um it can have an impact on your well-being it can have an impact on sort of um, physiological things to do in your body good or bad um, bad meaning it can um, disrupt your sleep. Rumination often disrupts your sleep. Well-being can be affected. And I found that in my own research with collective trauma, whether we're talking about the pandemic, whether we're talking about terror attacks, one of the initial impact on people is that it affects their health and their physiological and psychological health. But there's also, there's also over time, this, this thing called growth that happens as well. And growth is, is really important because it's enabled by a number of things. Some of us can, can grow just from the thinking that we're doing. 
it's sort of a self-managed thing. But as the worker Sally shows in this diagram, growth um, often occurs through the relationships that we have with others, the support that you get from the people around you, the support that you might get from work and the work relationships, the companionship that you have at work, the people that you can rely on to listen to you, to engage with you in dialogue, to make sense of what's happened. And when these things happen well, it leads to this idea of, of, of growth. And in the workplace, that's about giving you a positive work identity. So something bad has happened. How can I turn that around and get make something positive out of it? I'm a new person now because of this. Um, it, in the same way, it can positively impact your career and it can impact the kind of leader that you are or your engagement with leaders at work. So that's sort of what the process is, is showing. Um, and it's nice because I think it, it goes through the immediate impact to sort of the other side of it as well. And I love the idea of growth, Willem. I think that um, people do do it, but we just don't talk about it enough. We have to do it as humans, right? Nothing at work, nothing in life is devoid of bad things happening. And the fact that so many of us carry on means that we're probably doing something right along the way even if we don't articulate that actually we've learned from this and we're moving forward with it. So I love this work. I, I think it's fascinating. <laughs> and, and I like the, the, the point you make about companionship uh, yeah. and, and the occupational sports within the workplace, whether that be coaching or your best friend at work, you know, so all engagement surveys will, will talk about having that best friend yeah. at work and, Again, when we talk about workplace, a lot of my work, and I'm sure your yeah. work when it comes to individual coaching is sometimes people have these adverse childhood experiences or trauma that come into the workplace. And when you mentioned about leadership, then, hmm. you know, put a, a pandemic on top of that and that collective trauma that's going on, then as a leader, then yeah. I'm layering up the trauma, am I? So that means there's more I suppose, occupational supports that I require to be able to be successful in my role. And a lot about this research, I really like that when you mentioned there that positive work identity, we've gone through this together, look what we have achieved. Uh, and again, for some people then, it gets them to reevaluate their career. They sometimes be more proactive to say, listen, I need to enhance my digital skills or actually, you know what, I mightn't be playing to my strengths here in my role, you know, and it's really been highlighted uh, there. So this is where there's an opportunity then for leaders to actually be even more connected to employees. And I think there's greater demands on, on leaders now to be more proactive with connecting with direct uh, reports and employees. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think so, um, William. And there, there, they have, there has been a bit of research that's looked at, um, the impact on the leader as well. Um, so there's a couple of things here. Leaders um, are at the forefront of managing people who have been through trauma. So we can only imagine the burdens on them as well. Um, and perhaps the recent pandemic um, has made their job even tougher than normal, um, dealing with people who themselves might have been struggling for, for, for any reason. So there's probably a lot more um, that leaders themselves, and this is in my consulting practice that I am finding, and you probably are as well, William, that um, leaders are having to do a lot more of what we call those soft skills, which, you know, they're not soft at all. They're, they're really important. They're as important as any other skills, but a lot more compassion, 
And this, this builds on, on research on compassionate organisations that have been, have been conducted for the past couple of decades, that organisations where employees are treated with care and compassion, particularly when they've been through trauma, et cetera, um, employees then feel more satisfied in their jobs. So I think now more than ever, organisations and their sort of representatives are going to have to, hopefully they're already doing it, but if not, dig a little bit deeper and find that compassion and care. There's a lot of us that are going to be needing that, but particularly as people are heading back into work. A, a lot has been done virtually as we go back into the workplace. I think a lot more um, in addition to the work itself, but it's those conversations that you have with workers. It's that care and understanding of not just their work, but them. Their, themselves that come to work and ourselves, if you will, is comprised of more than just our work identities, right? It's everything, all the baggage that we bring on a daily basis, all the baggage and all the trauma experience of the last couple of years. So I think so many people going back into work, there'll be that, that confused emotions, those confused thoughts about um, what's been going on. Has this just been a really bad dream and now we're back trying to take off from where we were a year or two years ago? So people are probably more confused, perplexed, nervous, anxious, scared than ever before. And I think it's incumbent on leaders to show more of that compassion and care than ever before. That will take care of, you know, demonstrating that that sort of compassion it reassures people, doesn't it? And I think if you want citizenship, if you want commitment from workers, then demonstrating more and more of that, particularly at this time, is going to be in, in, in leaders' interests, really. Without making it sound like it's... You, a, you are, yeah. and, and, and I'm trying to make sense of this. So there are certain people I might talk to to go, I'm already overloaded. I'm trying to meet the strategic objectives as the organisation. I... I I'm overwhelmed myself, mm-hmm. um, and and then they might be they might be putting up boundaries to say, I don't really want to know. Yeah, you know because they're trying to do that self protection piece. So, is there is there maybe is it that the demands and the level of expectations for leaders to be more compassionate now than maybe previously thought, where, like you said, there we want someone to care about us, not just from a personal or professional point of view but a personal point of view I think so I think they they probably are and I think again this is just anecdotal things that I've read um William I can't claim to have um researched this myself yet um but I think there are when I think about um my own occupation and going back into the the workplace I think there is this sort of um defecting to leaders to show the way a little bit and sort of um pacify people help help them out when they're struggling their sense making but the flip side of that I think when you you've hinted that this uh the demands placed on leaders to show the way and they're is, is higher now probably more than ever but they're also in the same boat as us right and I think the danger here is that when we rely on on leaders for example um, in the workplace to help people by mi- trying to mitigate their own their, their suffering leaders themselves can end up absorbing all of that right they can end up taking in all of this negativity all of the the the, the, the toxic emotions if you will in the workplace and I think that's that's even harder for them to deal with so we might see leaders being even more burnt out because they're trying to sort of manage not only themselves but also their workforce as well research has shown that in the past 
I wonder whether I, I, I can probably guess that it's going to get um, a bit more heightened as everyone goes back into work and everyone's dealing with sort of making sense of what the past two years has, has shown us. But I think it's worth keeping an eye on our leaders as well, for sure, and helping I, them when we can. Yeah, I've been working with a group lately and we had a major theme throughout a series of workshops who are doing a leadership development program and self-care time and time again uh, came up and I think there needs to be a certain amount of personal responsibility and also as leaders we need to know where to draw the line am I fully equipped to have this conversation I think we need to have enough of a conversation to understand the context and that we can understand what people are going through. And and then that's where we signpost people to the experts or the sports or coaching or employment assistant programs. Would that be your theory or or, or approach or would you have something different to mine? No, I think that sounds really reasonable and and sensible. In my own um, consulting practice, I'm finding very similar things. I think right now more than ever, leaders are really vulnerable. I think they're having to show the way, but they're also in the same boat as everybody else. And so keeping an eye on them, I think, is as important as uh, on, on their sort of um, health, etc. is as important as keeping an eye on the work that they're doing by managing everybody else and trying to prevent leader burnout, I think, is going to be really, really important as well. I like your, your notion of self-care, though. I think that's really, really insightful. Um, I've I've also have something in the pipeline around self-care, but particularly with nurses. Um, Again, it's in those occupations and perhaps leadership is is also one of them when we think of organisations themselves. But in in the the calling occupations like healthcare um, or indeed, you know, any any occupation that we're we're drawn to, self-care is so important, isn't it? And I think so many of us forget to do that. I've heard used a lot um, in conversations during the pandemic take care of yourself you've got to take care of yourself find half an hour for go for a walk meditate listen to some music have a mug of tea whatever it might be I just wonder how many of us have forgotten to do that I'm sure many people have done it quite well but many of us with lots of competing demands on our times lots of things to juggle with we don't do enough of that do we really enough of sitting down and taking care of ourselves whether it's a leader or not, I do think it's so important. Practically, I see that people are crying out for it. Strategies, how can I be more mindful? How can I um, engage more in, in, in something, some, some therapy, whatever it is, that will help me feel better, will help me feel less anxious about what might come tomorrow, given the sort of up and down of the past two years. But I don't know what you think, William, but self-care is so hard to teach people, isn't it? It, It We're not very good at taking care of ourselves, and particularly those of us who take care of others all the time, right? It's so hard. It shouldn't be. It sounds obvious. Go for a walk, have a long bath, read a book. But, you know, when you're so drowned at the end of the day, where do you find the time to do that? 
it, a really important <clears throat> point you're making here, and I'm glad we're having this discussion. Yeah, me too. a couple of epi- episodes ago, um, there's a business psychotherapist uh, called Naomi Shrage, yes, um, of the Financial Times uh, as well, and we were talking about her book, um, The Man Who Mistook His job for his career and it's really about understanding what is driving your behavior so if it is that workaholism like that's solving a problem there's a reward in that for you and I think from a leadership perspective sometimes we're nearly seeking permission from others is it okay if we take a break or something like that and I think there needs to be a reframe where leaders are encouraging people not see because then we're going back into you yeah. know um transference isn't it where we see authority figures as like the adults or parents in our relationship where we need to be adult ourselves to yeah. say okay you know and, and a point i made to a group was when it comes to self-care is if you're thirsty you mm-hmm. go for a coffee or drink if you're hungry you you go mm-hmm. for lunch or you have a snack and the same way with self-care is yeah. you, you need to take time out or breath. We need to start treating it that way and be more disciplined, a bit like we have our coffee break at 11 o'clock. What is it that we do yeah. for self-care? And that brings then for, for nurses there, because it's so full on in hospitals right now. What is your findings about self-care yeah. with nurses that we might be, uh, our listeners might be interested in? In progress. But as, as with everything else we're talking about, but I think, you know, one of the most interesting things, I'm going to be a little bit critical here, um, and you might have found this too, William, but I think it's all good and well telling workers to adopt more self-care practices, to be more self-caring. But if the culture doesn't permit them to do so or encourage them to do so or indeed allow them to do so, then, you know, how does that happen? It's And I think what I'm hearing from the nurses that I'm speaking to is, yes, we know about it. Yes, we know we should do this. We know we should do that. A, when do I find the time? And B, when I do do it, it's often frowned upon. And I know that from my own personal experiences. You know, you if, if you work in a culture where if you're seen to have a half an hour off for your lunch to go for a walk or, or actually not even be at your desk, if that's frowned upon, then how on earth do you do self-care? So I think people have to, you know, within yourself, you know that it, if it matters to you, I know for a lot of people for whom self-care is so important that they will, where they will put, you know, put times in their diary block things out. This is my hour. Nothing will go here. I will do whatever it is that I need to do to take care of myself. I will not entertain calls, meetings, whatever it might be. Some people don't do that. Um, And we don't need to be given permission to take care of ourselves. But I think if so many of us are working in a culture where it's looked down on if you're not available all the time, or if you're seen to be weak, if you take time out for yourself, then I think that's a real problem, isn't it? And I and yes. I think without, you know, without general, I think that's a big problem, isn't it? It is. And I'm glad you mentioned that culture because sometimes it's lip service, isn't it? We tell yeah. you what you want to hear. The reality yeah. is we might be actually under-resourced or um, I suppose under-performance from others is is being tolerated yeah. And again, that's not been addressed. So other people are carrying their workload. And again, that frowning piece of, oh, 
you're on a half day. Yeah. You know, even yeah, though that's it, right? you could you yeah. could have started at seven o'clock and you you you, you know you're finishing yeah. at half three or something like that. Yeah. So there yeah. is that socialization piece where there has to be a demonstration from leadership and all senior leaders that they're doing that. And science shows the evidence does show, um, and I don't know if you, you've done similar research there. We're more productive when we take um, uh, self-care breaks. We're more innovative because that creativity happens. Yeah. And we make better decisions. We're good at problem yeah. solving. We improve communications, overall yeah. um, productive. And, and my work, I'm also a mediator as well. Yeah. So when we're in conflict or there's an internal conflict going on within ourselves, if we're doing a yeah. uh, conflict coaching, for example, I think that's where that's where people sometimes don't see the benefits um, of yeah, self-care. Yeah. They kind of see it as something that's selfish. Yeah. Whereas if you were in an airplane, yeah. what, what would they, what yeah, would the yeah, people, yeah. the cabin crew tell you to do is actually take the oxygen exactly. for yourself. Mind yourself exactly. first before you take care of others. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so the, the, the idea of selfish, it really rings true from the data that I have. Uh, I'm in progressing with nurses. They see it as selfish taking time out for themselves. And you know what? <clears throat> I get that because sometimes I do too, personally. I really do. Yeah. If I take time out from, for myself during the day, uh, I, I'll get, I'm speaking for myself and others close to me, especially time away from children. You feel guilty for it. Now, what have I done to deserve a, a half hour to myself? I could be doing this, 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 this. Yeah. Isn't that strange? Isn't it strange that... For so many of us, and I think this is not just work culture, but just cultures in which we've grown up, what society tells us is okay to do and not. And, in, you know, oftentimes self-care is associated with indulging. It's something that you're doing that you don't need to do, and it's indulging. It's unnecessary. It's sort of excessive. And that's not the case, is it? But having said that, I just thought of something really interesting. And again, this is anecdotal insights. Um, that I've I've gauged through talking to lots of people, some for research, some some just um, personal connections. I do think coming back to this idea of post traumatic growth and, and insights during trauma, how many people do you know that have um, are doing something different and positive off the back of the trauma? The, the, the collective trauma of COVID-19, having to stay at home, work from home, it has been hard for so many people, undoubtedly. But how many of us forcing that into that situation have actually come away with different strategies about managing ourselves, our houses, our children, our work, whatever it is, and we're still not letting go of those good things that we've adopted, whether it's that half-hour walk in the morning, whether it's saying, no, I am not available after five o'clock to take any calls and I'm going to do that twice a week, twice a week, no meetings on these days. These downtimes have forced many people to adopt habits. And I think it's because necessity breeds innovation, right? We had nowhere to go. We're getting so stressed. We cannot be on Zoom meetings five days a week, 24 hours a day. It's just not possible. It forces so many people to put time restrictions strategies in place to better manage themselves and be better for the people that that they love and that's been a really really interesting insight i don't know if we can call it growth per se but we can definitely call it when you push to your limits you can also click for the better and this this i think i've seen a lot of self-care actually um being thrust upon people you've been forced to almost arise out of it and you have to to cope so i think that's been a massive insight that 
and and, and I've, I've seen people do all sorts of things I've put blockers in my own diary William I have these couple of times a week where I'll I'll between you and I and your listeners I'll go for a run and I'll block it out in my diary uh, 15 minutes before 15 minutes after so I can warm up and cool down and breathe and grab and I won't I won't compromise that because if that slips one week it slips the next week it slips the next week and before you know it it's been six months before you've taken any care of your physical health and that's you know that's something some of the changes that I've made in my own life and I don't know if you have too but there's always a silver lining there somewhere I think there is and you know, recalls uh, to mind the work of Carol Dweck of Growth Mindset. Yes. Isn't it? It's always yes, yes, okay. Yes. What am I learning about this? Yes. You know, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. always about the, the outcome. It's about the process. And I think from your your sharing of how you've changed, I think many people have changed. And I think there's a big fear from people, especially when we're turning to the office. Now that's going to disappear. My walk yeah. is going to disappear. And, and this is where there's a real emphasis now on that flexibility of work. And this is part of, I think, the organization support to help us with this trauma back into the workplace is yeah. we need yeah. to be very strategic in how we're bringing people back in. So we've done this, uh, a, a recent episode with Kelly uh, Yost, and she she gives us a lot of information about that. So I might direct the listeners towards that. Yeah. So we are coming to the end of our podcast today, Raji. It is. It has flown by (laughs) from the time we first met um, back in 2013. I'm so glad we have kept in touch. Um, My gosh, it's nearly been 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, And I have to say you were you were so instrumental in my learning it's great that you were my tutor there so thank you so much for that and do say hello to uh jackie uh coyle shapiro did i say that right sorry dr jackie i forgot and uh sorry for professor sally professor apologies (laughs) apologies okay so that's all we have time for today what i'd like to do is to give you an opportunity if people to reach out to you um how might they do so they can find me on LinkedIn um, or they could email me at Birkbeck. Um, should I share my email address? That'd be great if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, of course. It's a, it's a complicated one. I, I might write it at the bottom of, of, you might have to scribble it somewhere. But um, I mean, you can find me on the Birkbeck pages, but it's um, r.denza-carlon, so D-H-E-N-S-A uh, hyphen K-A-H-L-O-N at bbk.ac.uk that's a long right. one <laughs> that is a long one i try i try so hard to abbreviate it and then it just doesn't work it ends up being too short okay okay yeah. raji thank you so much for joining the workplace podcast today thank you so much William. it's been a real pleasure to have um, caught up with you again and and have you interested in some of the research i'm doing so thank you that's it for this episode of the workplace podcast My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corliss, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner. Provider executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.